What's up, everyone? Yes, it is I, your host, Natalie Morrison, and you might be thinking, wasn't this called Swim Masters? Well, yes, it was, and you're definitely in the right place. We decided that we wanted to give the podcast a bit of a makeover, and we're so proud to introduce to you Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast. Don't worry, it's still the same content, still the same hosts. We just wanted to take this to the next level. And we're excited that you're joining us on this fantastic journey. The episode that you're currently listening to was recorded before the name change. And I just wanted to let you know that you are in the right spot. So keep on listening. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for all new episodes of Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast coming soon. Welcome to Swim Masters, a podcast dedicated to help connect, grow, and support women in the music products industry. I am your host, Natalie Morrison. The Smart Women in Music Fund was established in 2018 by Robin Walenta, Dee Dee Hyde, and Crystal Morris to expand diversity, inclusion, and support for women in the music product space. Twice a month, I will sit down and host virtual conversations with various women across our industry to help foster mentorship and growth. Now, without further ado, Let's dive in. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Swim Masters. I'm your host, Natalie Morrison. Thank you for tuning in, as always. Happy spring. It is April. The sun is shining. The flowers are blooming. The days are longer. The weather is warmer. I could go on and on and on about how excited I am that it is spring. I'm from the East Coast, so if you are not particularly familiar, this winter we got many a snowstorm. And I'm over it. (laughs) I'm ready to not wear sweaters and jackets and hats and gloves, and I'm just excited to enjoy the outdoors and the longer sunny days. Don't get me wrong, I do love the snow, the first snow. Especially over the holiday season, it is very magical, but after that I'm done. Like, next season bring on the warmth, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> Anywho, today's episode is an exciting one. I got the chance to walk down memory lane a little bit. I sat down and spoke with Miranda Altman, who is the Senior Director of Program Operations at Little Kids Rock. And I met Miranda six years ago when I had the unique opportunity to intern with Little Kids Rock. So I do have a soft spot in my heart for the organization and all the work that they do. And I'm excited for everyone else to hear about Little Kids Rock's mission and the work that Miranda does and her journey into the industry. I think this episode is going to resonate with a lot of people and I'm just excited for you all to hear it. So I'm done chatting for now and I will... See ya on the flip side. Enjoy. Hi, Miranda. Thank you so much for joining Swim Masters. So excited to have you on the podcast. Hi, Natalie. I'm so excited to be here today. So I wanted to start with your journey into the music industry. Have you always wanted to work in music? If so, or if not, where did you start and where are you now? So I've taken 
not the traditional path and into the music industry, that's for sure. Um, I actually graduated college with a degree in geography. Um, that's actually a major. <laughs> um, no idea what I wanted to do. Found myself working in finance on Wall Street. Um, for a year or two after graduation, uh, I just everyone asked me what I did, and I can't even I can't even explain it because it just was it, it was such it was the wrong fit. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to to go in the direction of whatever was opposite from that. So I was actually on Craigslist and this was back in 2009 when it was a standard thing for small companies to post jobs on Craigslist. Um, and I saw this <laughs> posting. <laughs> yeah. I it wouldn't have, I don't think that happens today. I, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't been on Craigslist in a while, but there was this posting um, <laughs> for, for this little organization called little kids rock. And I looked at it and I said, well, this is opposite enough from what I'm doing now. So applied and was hired and was hired because they needed someone with data experience with that, which I had a little bit of um, with my work in finance. Um, but very quickly, you know, I came into this, or it was a four person operation. Um, it was trying to do very big things and they didn't really need someone with data experience. They needed just someone to do a little bit of everything. So rolled up my sleeves and I jumped in. <laughs> um, and I quickly found myself involved in you know, teacher customer service, visiting classrooms, working with instrument partners, mass comms, events, everything. Um, so that, that, that was the start. <laughs> um, I've always been a huge music lover and consumer, um, but growing up, I ne never really had the opportunity to me to learn um, to how to be a music maker in a way that engaged me. Um, but when I got into this role, I realized pretty quickly that I needed to learn how to connect with not only our music educator network, but also um, our music product industry partners. Um, and I didn't have a background in the field, so I couldn't really walk the walk. So I jumped into taking guitar lessons um, and learning how to play. And, and in the decade since, I can't imagine my life not being a music maker, not being a player. Um, it's just a brought, has brought me so much joy and opportunities to connect with others. It's really defined who I am today. I love that. You were talking before, just you, first of all, you found a job that was completely opposite of what you were doing. And that's like, that's kind of how you based it. But then yeah. being involved in the job, it opened a door for you that I guess you would have never known or never thought that you would be doing. Yeah. If you had, you know, on my college graduation day, if you had said, you know, I would be working in, in the music industry, um, working with educators, playing guitar, um, I, I would have, I would not in a million years believed anyone that had told, would tell me that. Like I just completely unexpected turn. That's amazing. Yeah. So you've been with Little Kids Rock for over 12 years. I guess before we dive into how your role has changed over the course of your tenure, let's start with how, like what exactly does Little Kids Rock do? 
So Little Kids Rock, um, so we're a nonprofit, um, and our mission is to transform lives by restoring, expanding, and innovating music education in our our schools, our public schools. Um, And so we do this by um, what we call modern band. Um, So it's it's a kind of new school music programming that teaches kids to perform, improvise, compose, using the popular styles um, that they know and love, rock, hip hop, um, and our programming features uh, guitar, bass, keyboards, technology. And so what we do is we partner with school districts and we go in and we we train their educators um, how to run um, this, this programming, um, in their, in their music classes. And, um, we sometimes provide instruments, we provide curriculum and most of all, a a community community of like-minded educators from all over the country that are trying to do the same thing. Um, and it's really grown into this. It's not just about, um, giving instruments to underfunded schools. It's, it's a, it's an educational movement. I love, I love little kids rock. I'm a, a little biased when I say that, but <laughs> yes. Uh, so Natalie, Natalie was a former, uh, Natalie and I met when she was a former intern at an organization. I think it was, um, I was, I was looking today. I think it was maybe 2015 or so. Yes. About. yes. It's six years ago. Wow. It seems like a lifetime. It seems like a lifetime. I know. And I still keep in touch. Like, I mean, I see Dave all the time. Um, and I see you all the time. Brian. Brian likes to push my buttons whenever he sees me, but that's Brian. Um, <laughs> and then I still talk to Keith, who was my boss at the time. Well, so. I think that kind of the, what, what, what I'm so passionate about this movement is everyone who it touches, whether you're a former employee or a donor or a district arts admin, it's just like you become this family. It's, it's a community. Um, yeah. it's everyone's just so passionate that, um, even when people move on to different roles and different paths, like this is all still connecting us. This yeah. passion for music education. And what you guys do is so, you it's so unique and different. Anyway, so since you've been with Little Kids Rock for over 12 years, how has your role over the course of your tenure changed? So when I joined in 2009, um, I still can't believe it was 12, 12 years ago. And like, in a way, it just it feels like yesterday. Um, we, were, we were reaching maybe 30,000 students. We had about 250 teachers participating. I knew every teacher by name. Um, and then fast forward a decade plus some, and um, we have um, almost 3,000 educators in our network, and we're reaching over a half million kids every year. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it is mind-blowing sometimes. Um, we're in over 500 school districts, and um, but more than that, I think we've expanded our mission. Like, we're not just about little kids. <laughs> we're not just about rock. Um, we're putting a focus now on a lot of higher ed initiatives, training the educators of tomorrow. Um, and we're doing all music that's culturally relevant, whether that's EDM, mariachi. Um, so yeah, little kids rock is not little kids. It's not just rock. It's, <laughs> but 
for me, uh, my job, you know, it's, it's less hands-on than it used to be. Um, I really do miss working directly with teachers being in the middle of everything, but I have a really great team. Um, and I'm, I'm managing our budget. I'm setting strategy, but one part of my job that, um, I really enjoy and has remained a constant over the past 10 years has been working with the music product industry. Um, connecting our educators with what they need to offer this program and, and their schools. And, um, you know, every, we just keep growing with that. And for the past three years or so, we've partnered with Sweetwater, which is an incredible company to work with. And we've really been able to exponentially grow our impact. Um, I think over the past 10 years, we've, we've actually been able to place more than a hundred thousand instruments, um, and into schools with through through our um partnerships. Oh, that's that's incredible. It's a lot of guitars. I, I have um I actually have a picture from I don't know, maybe 2010 from your your former boss Keith, who's still with the org. Um he, it's from some press event in, in Florida where we made a guitar pyramid with like 500 guitars um, for, for a PR thing. And it's just like that. It's just like, that's like just a little sliver of, of all the instruments, but it, it felt like, felt like a lot of guitars at the, at the, at the time. <laughs> I know. I wonder what that would look like if you spaced out a hundred thousand guitars. I wonder what that would equate to. Uh, well, I am taking a math class right now with my um, MBA program I'm in. So I could probably figure that out if you really want <laughs> <I> to. <laughs> That's a rhetorical question, but it's like, interesting. Yeah. I, it's so interesting because when you see, sometimes you see those things where they're like X amount of stuff equals like the perimeter of Manhattan or something like wild like that. Um, but it just shows how much the organization has grown so quickly Definitely. over 12 years or whatnot. So 100%. So what are some of the main challenges facing students learning music today? I think one of the biggest challenges um, is achieving equity, um, providing access for all students um, to have that opportunity to engage in music. That's a way in a way that's meaningful and relevant to them. Music education in this country has not only been focused around traditional Western European music, but it also hasn't evolved very much over the past 50 or 100 years. So really, um, I think there's two barriers for access. And the first is, is not being in a school district with the funding to offer consistent programming or they're offering program, the accessing point is so high, such as you have to rent out an orchestra instrument for the entire school year. Um, a lot of kids, that's not a reality. Um, but I think, so that's one barrier. But I think the second is, is even when there's programming being offered consistently, it's also, it's often not culturally responsive to the student. Um, so the top five genres that Americans consume right now, if you're looking at digital uh, music sales, are rap, rock, pop, R&B, and Latin. That's over 70% of the music market. All of these genres have roots in Black and brown communities. But if you look at what's being taught in schools, 
it's overwhelmingly classical folk world and children's music, which when you combine those in terms of music sales, that's less than 2%. So there's a huge disconnect. So if what's being taught is not what the kids are listening to at home, sharing with their friends, they're less inclined to be engaged and pursue an opportunity to learn an instrument. So even if they have the access, like they're, they're not interested in doing it. It's such a good point, though, because you want kids to want to be interested in every when when a kid is in school like you want them to be interested in like various subjects and giving them something to relate to or which i think is also why music is so powerful and music education is so powerful um is because of it it's allowing kids to be able to relate back and say oh i can learn how to play my favorite song or whatnot so it's so important to give that opportunity for kids. I'm not saying that those other genres aren't important because they are, but it shouldn't be narrowly focused. Exactly. Like I, I, there's, there is the thing about music is there, there's a place for, for every genre. There's a place for, for every instrument. Um, you know, and I think a lot of times um, there's a perception that if you bring modern band programming into a school, then it's going to pull away from from orchestra, concert band. And what we see is that's not the case at all. It's actually you bring modern band to school, you have more kids. Um, you have you have a group of kids that that are excited about music, that are engaged, that now have a chance to play that might not have had that before. And all of a sudden, um, the demand for being in jazz band or orchestra is is, is higher because you have that many more kids who who now appreciate music, understand, and 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 are excited. Yeah, I love it. So speaking of teaching students and specifically music, obviously, the pandemic has drastically shifted how music is taught to students and for a lot of people it took a little bit to adjust because the world shut down pretty quickly so how has the pandemic shifted how the little kids rock program teaches music to students well um <laughs> when the pandemic hit um like most other industries, Little Kids Rock, um, our entire mission had to suddenly pivot to a digital forward one. Um, you know, before COVID-19, our focus has always been on providing in-person, hands-on, interactive professional development um, and building this community through events and performance opportunities for students. Um, obviously, that all went out the window. Um, and now we have all these students at home, um, many without access to instruments. Um, so we've been really relying heavily on digital tools such as Soundtrap, um, which is a platform. Um, it's a platform that allows students to compose and record originally, original songs collaboratively. Um, you know, we quickly shifted to make curricular videos for teachers daily. And then ultimately refocus to have free PDs offered for anyone, any teacher in the country, whether they're little kids rock teachers or anybody in the country um, with new content 
specifically geared towards a pandemic. And um, that looks like body drumming, choreography, um, vocals, creating drum sets from items in your home, um, anything to keep music making happening in a distance environment. Mm. And um, I love that. Yeah, most, um, yeah, teachers, music teachers have been forced into this role of being constant innovators through all of this. And, um, you know, in addition to their previous jobs of teaching music, like they now have this, and it's, it's been very demanding um, for everybody. Yeah, and it's good that, that you're offering ways just to make it easier for them to get through each week or each day, because people have to take it day by day. And, and that's it. And, and at our core, we've always been an organization that serves teachers. So, you know, we're serving teachers now in conditions that no one ever imagined. Um, yeah. And it hasn't been easy and it hasn't been perfect, but, you know, we're, we're here and, and, and we've had this, you know, we've been relying a, a lot more on, on crowdsourcing, um, having educators helping educators. Um, mm what's connecting teachers with what's working for, for them on this day um, with, with others. So, so to try to kind of form this like hive mind, <laughs> we're all in this together. Yeah. It's really important. So what have you learned over the years that continues to guide you through your day-to-day at work? Um, well, I think really that it's, it's really important to find the parts of your job that sustain your energy and passion, especially a nonprofit. Um, and especially working for the same company for 12 years, which I know is unusual for, for us millennials. Um, and especially, kind of the, the has I've, I, as I've moved up in my career and I'm less involved in a lot of the hands-on exciting things that I've had to really figure out like what's what's my passion in this job um and for me it's empowering girls and women to do things play instruments that traditionally have been very male dominated um and when it comes down to it modern band does so much but one one specific thing is it, it, it it provides girls with more opportunities to learn how to play guitar. Um, yeah. And if, um, you know, if you, if you look at decades ago, only 5% of consumers per- that were purchasing guitars were female. And today it's 50%. Just the- yeah. Especially in the last year too, majority of the guitar boom that we've seen has come from females as well. 100%. Um, and, but now I think like now we have the numbers, but I think the next step is making sure that um, they're visible because still, I feel like a lot of the advertising and sponsorships you see is, is still more male dominated. Um, so it's, now we have the numbers, we have the access for, for girls, but now it's increasing that visibility. And right. For, for me, for engaging with, with that pers- like little personal part of our mission, like I really had to step outside my own comfort zone. Um, I had a pivotal moment maybe six, seven years ago at our annual teacher conference, the Modern Band Summit. Um, 
And the, it's our annual uh, conference that we have in Colorado every year where we have hundreds of educators from around the country come for you know four days of community building and professional development. And the summit's always been my baby and my passion project, but I'm logistics. <laughs> um, I'm behind the scenes. <laughs> um, but you know, a few years ago, our director of teaching and learning, Scott Burstein, approached me and he said, why don't you present a breakout session? And my first instinct was, no, I'm way too busy for that. And then then my second second instinct, though, was, no, I'm not good enough for that. I don't belong there. Um, But he really, he didn't really let let up and he encouraged me. And and finally, I was like, okay, fine, I'll I'll, I'll run a a session. Um, So we get to the workshop and... It's a room full of educators, um, music teachers with years of formal training, and I was just so nervous. Um, I'm definitely an introvert by nature. I've never really been a public speaker. Um, I was six months pregnant, awkwardly trying to like fit my Telecaster guitar over my huge belly. <laughs> and I got through it, but I was sure I'd blown it. I was convinced that everyone could see like what a fraud I was, that I wasn't a real musician. Well, why was I trying to teach? Like I'm supposed to be just, you know, running, running staff calendars. Like, well, why was I up there? So I, I had all these insecurities like while doing it. Um, but at the end of the session, several women came up to me, older, probably mid late sixties. And they said it was the best session that they've attended so far at the conference. Um, and one was crying and, and she said she never thought she could take a solo on the guitar. And now she could, and she could jam with the, with the guys. And <laughs> it was in that moment that I realized my value was not to be the most experienced or aggressive in the room. It's showing that so many other showing, showing, so showing others that, teaching people in a way that's accessible, meeting them where they're at. And it's something I think that can be applied like beyond playing guitar. It could be really to anything in the business world. Um, like you don't, you don't have to be the, the aggressive expert in the room. Um, there are lots of ways to contribute <laughs> and make people feel valued and heard and to teach. Yeah. I love that though. Cause I wasn't there, obviously, but it almost it almost seems as if they really related to you. Like you had all of these insecurities of not being good enough or not being the right person to teach this course. But it almost seems like they were able to relate with you because they might not have necessarily been a guitar teacher because a lot of these teachers have haven't really picked up guitar before. So. Yeah, and I think there's this myth around playing electric guitar and taking soloing that it's only supposed to be for experts or the, or the shredders, and that's not the case. I love that. Um, so, and I know I've gotten off on a little tangent, but um, as this sunk into me, um, a memory came back from when I was in the sixth grade. And when I was in the sixth grade, at the end of the school year, our teacher said every kid in the class was going to get an award. Um, growing up, I never really excelled in anything. You know, I was a C plus student, 
picked last in gym class. <laughs> um, you know, all that. I'm sure a lot of us can re relate to that feeling. Um, <laughs> so I was really excited about the idea, like to, oh my gosh, like I'm, this is, I'm going to be able to experience what recognition feels like. Um, so they're doing their awards and it comes to be my turn. And the award I received was for most shy. What? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty BS. Even at 11 years old, I was like, wait a minute. My greatest attribute is not having a voice. Um, and I was crushed at the time. And honestly, I completely repressed the, that memory until that day. Um, when I found myself six months pregnant, running a lead guitar workshop for this huge audience and making a difference. Um, and that kind of lit a fire in me <laughs> that like, I don't want any girl to ever feel like her best asset is not having a voice. Um, mm. and that's a lot of things to try to change at once, but I know with my role now, it, like anytime I have the opportunity to do something, I've done that workshop every year since. And I try to put myself out there, like, even though it's not part of my job role, um, you know, my job role is, is, is proving expense reports and setting strategy. But whenever I get a chance to participate in filming a video or playing at an event, like I, I do it. Um, and I, and every time I still have that nagging feeling, I'm not qualified, but I do it because rep representation matters and it's so important. And that keeps me engaged. It keeps me passionate about my job even when I'm sitting there approving someone's six months of expense reports in an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> but it's, this story is, it, I think so many people are going to relate to this story. I relate to the story. I, everyone knows that I'm, when you first meet me, I'm quiet. I'm shy. I keep to myself. I don't say much. And I just, sit there but all my once you get to know me like I'm I become a very bubbly like extroverted person but I guess the facade is the introvert but hearing other people talk about putting their self putting themselves out there and taking those risks and getting out of your comfort zone it helps others I think to see that they too can do that yeah, and I'm really, I'm just so happy, and I feel so privileged to be a part of that. And you know, I've, and I and I know you and many of our listeners and the women in the Swim Network have the experience being at NAM and being the only woman in the room. And like, I used to be really self self conscious about that, like thinking, like, oh my gosh, I got I got to step it up and I I, I got to communicate and and be the same way. But no, no, like sometimes um, there there are a lot of different ways to lead. Oftentimes, um, I've felt like I couldn't take on something or I couldn't do it. But but the beautiful thing is your capacity just keeps expanding, it expands as you grow, you know? Yeah. Last question. What advice do you have for women looking to move up in the industry? So I think, and I know this is has become a buzzword recently, but I think it's so true have a growth-oriented mindset. Um, I'm someone, nothing has really ever come natural to me, so I, I guess I'm used to just feeling uncomfortable, but it's been, which I used to think was um, 
like I used to think it was a challenge to overcome and it used, I used to be frustrated by that, but now I realize it's actually really been such a, a big service to me. Like get used to feeling uncomfortable. Um, because when you feel uncomfortable, that's when the growth happens. Um, so I, I always try to keep that in mind. Like when it's just say yes, say yes to everything. You're not qualified. You feel like you can't do it. Say yes. Um, and and it, mm. it's uncomfortable. And, um, but that's, that's how you push yourself. Um, and then really like, it, it makes you open to, to pivoting. Um, I, I try not to be afraid of pivoting. Um, I had this big trip um, to Europe planned last spring. Um, April, 2020. And it, it was a really big deal for me. It was my first real vacation since my divorce three years earlier. Um, all my closest friends, we finally got our schedules aligned and obviously it was canceled, um, because, you know, global pandemic. And, um, it seems silly now to, to be disappointed about that with everything else that's happened. But you know, at the time I was bummed out, but, um, I had been toying with the idea of getting my MBA for years. And coincidentally, the program I had been debating about their next term was starting the very day that my, my flight was supposed to be. So my colleague mm -hmm. and I were like, you know what? Can't go anywhere. Let's get our MBAs. And um, I'm going to be graduating. <laughs> I'm going to be graduating this December, um, not in geography, but with my MBA in the music business. And at first I had just wanted it just to get, put something on my resume, but honestly, I've just, I've learned so much and have grown so much during this, this year in lockdown that, um, I'm just so thankful for that. And, um, and you think, um, and what I've realized with, with that, because it's, it's like, Oh, I have this full-time job, um, that's demanding. I'm a single parent. Like, can I do this? But it, what you realize is like your capacity grows with you. Your capacity expands. Um, as you grow. Mm -hmm. So I try to keep that in mind and it's really helped me a lot. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations on your almost, I mean. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's not the end of it. It's still, we're still in the beginning of the year, but still like that's so exciting that you're going to graduate in December. And Thank you. Um, I guess my advice to to people just starting their career and even in their midpoint, like I am, like just never get comfortable, never get comfortable. Someone told me recently um, that if you're comfortable, you're doing it wrong. Mm. You know, I can totally, it, it took me a long time to realize that because I always thought if you're uncomfortable, you're, you're not qualified, but that it's the opposite. <laughs> if you're comfortable, you're doing it wrong. I love that. I feel like earlier in my career, I, I, I used to, whenever I hit obstacles, I used to kind of um, cave in more and, and, but now I just, I, I see everything as an opportunity to, to pivot and grow. Yeah. Something about being uncomfortable is it keeps you on your toes and it can be very unsettling to feel uncomfortable, but yeah, I, I've been thinking about that a lot and it, it resonates a lot with me. If, it also shows that you're, you're passionate and you care about the work that you're doing. If you're uncomfortable I guess if that makes sense I don't know if I'm making any sense no you know what no it, it does and, and I actually had a conversation this morning um with my best girlfriend who works in the defense industry like another male dominated industry very different than music but still she has a lot of same challenges and you know she said to me she's like if you're meeting your all your goals quickly if you're not setting 
big enough goals. Yeah. If you're not uncomfortable, if you're not facing challenges, like your goals just aren't big enough. It's very true. And important advice to hear every so often. I think so. Because it's not something you think about. No. And and like, and honestly, for me, it's take, it's, it's, it's having, I have to hear that like a lot to like, have it really sink in. Like you can hear something and be like, oh yeah, that sounds nice. But to actually believe it in your core, it takes a lot of sinking in. Well, Miranda, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I had a blast and I, I think that people are going to really relate to our conversation. So thank you for your words and your time. Thank you so much. I feel so privileged to be able to share today and I hope we can see each other in person soon. Yes. (laughs) Hopefully there's an in-person NAMM show coming up and what is it? 10 months, nine months. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Yes, absolutely. Thanks again, Miranda. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Swim Masters. Don't forget to follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on all new things swim. We'd love it if you could share and leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at smartwomeninmusic.org. This episode was co-produced and edited by Stephanie Lamond, Natalie Morrison, and Julia Olson. See you next time.